Hey, history buffs. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you all about a great organization. You may know John Wynn from my constant shout outs to him at the end of every episode. He does all of our amazing artwork for the show. Well, this year, he's doing the AIDS Life Cycle. Now, the AIDS Life Cycle is a 545-mile bike trip from San Francisco to Los Angeles. Meanwhile, I can't even ride a bike down the fucking street. Proceeds from this ride go directly to the Los Angeles LGBT Center and the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. It is an amazing cause. And if you'd like to donate, click the link in the show notes. Now, here's the show. Because your question is... A very political question, because you have an agenda. You're CNN. You're fake news. Ah, fake news. A term we hear so often these days that it's so ingrained in our culture's lexicon, we almost forget what it means. In our polarized political climate, and with so many options, from CNN to Fox News to MSNBC, it's hard to sort out truth from fiction and fact from opinion. Pair that with the fact that literally all analytical thinking has gone flying out the window. We tend to gravitate, regardless of our political beliefs, to the news outlets that reaffirm what we already believe. But is this era of fake news a new thing? On part one of this two-part episode, because you know I love a cliffhanger, we're going back over a hundred years when newspapers, not cable television, were the driving force in how people got their information and how a war ramped up their efforts to outdo one another with sensational journalism. I'm your host, Mark Brennan Rosenberg, and this is Fucked Up History. Today, I'm honored to have John Maxwell Hamilton as our guest. Jack Hamilton is the Hopkins P. Brazil professor at Louisiana State University's Manship School of Mass Communication and a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars. His last book, Journalism's Roving Eye, A History of American Reporting Abroad, won the Goldsmith Prize. He's just completed a history of the rise of American government propaganda, which took place during World War I, a book that will be published next year. We're very honored to have him. I reached out to Jack because I had found an article he had written for the National Geographic magazine about Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst and their journalism during the Spanish-American War. It's a great article, and I highly suggest you read it. Being the basic B.I.M. and having seen Newsies more times than I care to admit, I thought that this rivalry would be a great topic for the show. But once I began speaking to Jack, I began to realize there was a bigger rivalry in play. Pulitzer and Hearst were in competition with each other, yes, and both used sensationalized news stories to sell papers. But neither one of those papers exist anymore. I asked Jack, how did their papers differ from each other? And how did they differ from the other papers at the time, some of which are still in existence today? They competed with each other, but they weren't really different from each other in any fundamental way. They were different from other papers that acted in a more sometimes restrained fashion. So you could look at the New York Evening Post, the New York Times, the Chicago Daily News particularly, as papers that were of a different variety. So I think the way to look at Pulitzer and Hearst is that they they were the architects of a new kind of reporting, a new kind of journalism, which has gotten the name yellow journalism. And the idea of yellow journalism is that it's highly sensational. It has a lot of storytelling in it, 
and it looks for ways to ramp up stories. Pulitzer was a Hungarian who came to the United States, an immigrant, and started in St. Louis. Hearst was a son of a wealthy businessman who got into journalism. Both of them were mavericks. Both of them were willing to push the envelope and compete for readers, and they competed for each other. It's worth telling as perhaps a little sideline that the term yellow journalism comes from the particular cartoon character that Pulitzer had, who had a huge following because cartoons was an, an idea, a way to attract readers. And he was called the yellow kid. And to show you how competitive this environment was, Hearst hired away a guy named Ocalt, who was the, the cartoonist, hired him away to his own paper, The American. And then Pulitzer kept the yellow kid, but with a different cartoonist. So they were very competitive with each other. But they were of a type of journalism that sought to make stories really exciting. And as a result of that, they were often accurate and, and, and often reform-oriented in terms of finding things ills with society. But they always overtold the story, exaggerated, lots of illustrations, things like that. And they, and they appealed to different kinds of audiences. What made the, the penny, it was called the penny press. Penny press had existed from the 1840s, and the idea was to sell a newspaper for a very low amount of money to reach a broad audience. That had the financial advantage of also getting advertisers to want to advertise in your paper because they reached a lot of potential customers. Even respectable papers could sometimes be penny papers, but the Hearst paper, the American, and the World, which was the Pulitzer paper, they were not only a low-cost paper with high revenue because of advertising, because they reached so many people, but they also had, as I say, this supercharged reporting that appealed to a middle class that wasn't as um, sophisticated as, say, those who would read the New York Times or the New York Tribune. There were a lot of different papers at the time, much like how people nowadays think there are a lot of different cable news networks, each attracting their own types of viewers in unique ways. But I asked Jack, since this was 100 years ago, what were the standards and ethics of journalism back in those days? Journalism went through phases. There was a phase that you could call the from the period right after the Revolutionary War, where, where printers started to become somewhat more sophisticated about what they were printing. But they were still pretty much printers who were just shoveling stories into newspapers. There weren't things like beats and reporters and city editors. That only begins to occur around the middle of the 19th century, when newspapers realized they could be highly commercial as opposed to being just partisan press. And as a result of that, you start getting some differentiation in job roles. And of course, that was happening across the United States in lots of professions. The idea that there would be somebody who specialized in book reviewing. There were the first book reviewer was somebody called Margaret Fuller, and she worked for the Tribune, and uh, that was her job. And there were people who now became correspondents who were hired by the paper as full-time journalists. And then there were editors who began to be not just an editor, but a city editor and a news editor and feature editor and so forth. But they didn't really have codes of ethics. That doesn't really begin to happen until after the turn of the century. Similarly, there weren't really schools of journalism until after the turn of the century. And if you think about it, it's kind of paradoxical, but one of the greatest schools of journalism is the Columbia School of Journalism, which was started by Pulitzer, who is considered with lower standards of quality journalism. But then when he became highly successful, wanted to be remembered for advancing the profession. And so around that time, you start getting journalism education, you start getting journalism associations, you start getting codes of ethics, ideas of responsibility. I think the first code of ethics was after World War One, And those codes of ethics had rules like you shouldn't be partisan, you should cover both sides, and so forth. 
So the, the press was in a state of flux at that point. There were some papers, like the New York Times, like the Evening Post, which is a wonderful paper, like the Chicago Daily News, which is tremendous, was a tremendous paper. And actually, you could argue the Chicago Daily News was the beginning of modern American journalism, even before the New York Times. The owner was a guy named Ox, the owner of the Times, had, had Lawson's picture in his office because he was, he was such an exemplar of doing responsible journalism. So these two versions kind of warred with each other. One could be called a fact-based version, and one could be called a storytelling version, to use a phrase that sort of captures the differences. One was responsible, one was entertainment. Both had facts, both did some entertainment, of course, but they saw their missions differently. And uh, they saw the readership in a different way. So those were the two kind of contesting models. There were a lot of papers in between that were competing for other segments of the market. But I think that described the situation pretty well. Nowadays, it's hard to differentiate between facts and entertainment and opinion. Don Lemon has a lot of opinions. Laura Ingram also has a lot of opinions. But whether you choose to believe it or not, both deliver a set of facts alongside of their opinions which form a type of entertainment for us. Were facts or entertainment and opinion what motivated newspaper sales of the days of Pulitzer and Hearst? Well, I think it depends on the newspaper. It, what, what sometimes is lost sight of is that the, that the sensational papers still had facts. It wasn't like they didn't have any facts at all. It, it was a question of, of, of orientation and presentation of facts. And it's, similarly, it's, it's not true that there wasn't storytelling by the responsible papers. And the Chicago Daily News, for example, had some of the best columnists in the country. In fact, they really kind of invented the idea of columnists. And they had wonderful writers. They hired people like Carl Sandburg to be writers on the paper. But the orientation, the sense of, the sense of responsibility and fidelity to being a fair reporters, rather than contorting the stories, was a difference between the two. There is an age-old myth that William Randolph Hearst had a hand in starting the Spanish-American War to drum up business for his paper. Now, when you're in high school reading about this, you're like, this couldn't possibly be true. But given the current political climate we're in right now, it's hard to believe that Fox News wouldn't try to start a war to help benefit Trump. I asked Jack, was this true or just one of our American urban legends? So there's a story, and the way the story goes is Frederick Remington, whom he hired, had gone to Cuba because the insurgents in Cuba were rising up against the Spanish who controlled Cuba. It was a colony. And Remington, as your listeners may know, was an illustrator who's, who's remembered today for his Wild West sculptures and paintings and drawings of Indians and cowboys and people on bucking broncos and Indians looking across the plain and all of that. But he was also a commercial artist, or at least a news artist. And so Hearst, because he hired big names, had hired him to go to Santiago in Cuba. And the idea was that there was going to be a revolution, a real full-blown revolution, rather than an insurgency. And uh, Remington got down there, and he, according to the famous telegram, he says to Hearst, you know, there's no revolution here, and I should come home. He was bored. And Hearst said, you supply the pictures and I'll supply the revolution. So that's a complicated story because, in fact, when the revolution did come, Hearst did write in the front of the paper things like, how do you like the, how do you like the Americans' war? The, you know, how do you like our newspaper's war? Uh, so it was as if he took some responsibility for starting the war. But, in fact, there's no evidence that telegram existed. It was a story that was told by a guy named James Creelman, who worked for Hearst, who himself was a highly sensational journalist. So where that comes from, I don't know. Hearst never said it. 
And it's very unlikely that that's true. But it is true that Hearst, Pulitzer, and other papers who were sensational were down in, in Santiago and in Chile, and they were writing lots of stories that suggested human rights atrocities and unfairness to the, the Cubans and the justice of rising up and resisting. So in that sense, I guess, the story itself, the telegram itself is not true, but the message behind it was certainly not one that Hearst would have disavowed. In fact, he tried to take credit for the war. In February of 1898, the USS Maine sunk in the Havana Harbor. This was a huge contributing factor to the U.S. getting involved in a war with Spain. I wondered how the yellow journalism of the time affected the American public's outlook on entering into a war with Spain. Were the papers sensationalizing this story, too, to sell more papers? Well, they all, you know, a lot of them did. And, of course, it was a great cause celeb because the sinking of a ship is a a dramatic event. So that gave you a causes belli, as it were. We now know that it probably wasn't sunk by the Spanish. It might, it might have been sunk by the Cubans, but a lot of work has been done, and it looks like something just blew up in the hull and sank the ship. But it's, you know, it's what happens in news is if you get a good dramatic event that you can draw attention to, it can become a kind of turning point. And so it helped move public opinion in favor of uh, going to war, in the same way that stories that came out during the Iraq War, the second Iraq War, following 9-11, the storylines, the narratives that emerged about weapons of mass destruction and all of that, add impetus to public opinion that you should go and enter into a conflict. And so there's a lesson in the Spanish-American War that we can learn about that triangulation. So historians have gone back and said, you know, Hearst didn't start the war. And they're right. The yellow press, not just Hearst, but the yellow press did not start the war. They sensationalized stories. They embellished them. They told stories that were just quite distorted. And I can give you some examples of those that are interesting. And so historians, they did all that. But the historical factors that got us into war are not just about the yellow press doing what it did. For example, there was the humanitarian side of this. The Spanish behaved very stupidly in terms of how they treated the Cubans, putting them in concentration camps and all of that. So that made for stories that tugged at the heartstrings of people back home. The second thing is Americans around that time had really used up all of their continental frontier. And the question was, where do they go from there? Because the, the idea of America being a great country and commercially viable was that there was, had been unlimited space to bring into the nation starting from the East Coast, of course, all the way across to the West. And so now the question was, how was the United States going to expand? And, and one way to think about that was to begin to expand overseas. And that meant being aggressive abroad in terms of getting markets and broadening your reach, your power, both economically and, of course, militarily. There was a famous, famous book uh, written by a guy named Mahan, which basically talked about the importance of sea power and how the Navy, how important the Navy would become. The secretary of the Navy at that time was Teddy Roosevelt, who was himself very expansion-minded, and he and Senator Lodge were uh, very supportive of the idea of an expansive nation. And Roosevelt used his power to help push the idea of going to war, and then, of course, went left his job as assistant secretary, uh, secretary of the Navy to become colonel in the Rough Riders, the unit that he commanded. So there was that. There was also a, a strange thing that happened, a kind of opening where elites were no longer temporarily totally in control of public opinion and foreign policy because we had not been an aggressive country overseas. We had been rather inward looking. And so a lot of the old elite bulwarks had temporarily just sort of disappeared and, and come down. And so all kinds of populist elements and elements that were 
that wanted to be really aggressive and wanted to express themselves as a patriotic, in a sort of patriotic way, were less restrained. And so you had across the country all kinds of marches and parades. And we had somebody created Spanish flag toilet paper so that you could obviously defecate on the Spanish. And so it was a very emotional time. And that contributed uh, to the idea of going to war. But I think there's another dimension that now brings the press back in. And that is that although you look at the yellow press as if it were a promoter of war, in fact, what happened is virtually every element of the press began to get on board with the war. And I've done a, this book I've written called Journalism's Roving Eye. I went back and did a study with some of my colleagues to study how the press generally covered the run-up to the war. And what we find is, yes, the sensational press was very sensational, but the conservative press was also became very much focused on the war and actually wrote more stories on the war and on what was going on in Cuba than the sensational press did. In other words, a huge volume of stories, which means the public is thinking about Cuba a lot, which is a way to begin to formulate public opinion, right? And then the second part of it is that while they weren't as extreme as the yellow press, they were still very pronouncedly in favor of the, the insurgent side of the war. And so I think you could argue that the press starts to become a enabling environment for the war to occur. If the press had gone in a completely different direction, if it had, if the conservative press, the elite press, had not reflected the sentiment of pro-insurgents, you wouldn't have had the public opinion be so supportive of a war. But in fact, it was. And whereas historians 100 years ago said, oh, the press created the war, and then they became more sophisticated and realized it didn't. I think it's wrong to leave that there were other factors, such as I mentioned, that I think when we look back today, we can see that the press did contribute. It didn't do the job all by itself, but it contributed. And there began to be what you would call kind of a, I call an enabling environment, in which people began to think a lot about the Cubans and a lot about how their aspirations because of the press and because it was tilting in the Cuban insurgent direction, were, were favorable to it. Kinley was a very keen reader of the press, and he, he used the press as a barometer of public opinion, which, by the way, is something officials still do. They see the press in a very complicated way. On the one hand, they spend a lot of time trying to get the press to write what they want them to write in favor of policies they prefer. But at the same time, they look at the press and what's in the press as a reflection of what the public thinks. And so I think those two work together then and they work together now. And the result of that is that the press did have a, did make a contribution, I believe. There are, there are examples, for example, of the New York Herald, the editor writing to, it might have actually be, been writing to McKinley, I don't remember right offhand, in which he said, you know, we've decided basically we need to start supporting this war because we, we don't want to be the last ones in. The direction of the way things are going, public sentiment, is we don't want to be totally outside where public opinion is. Interesting, as this all seems so relevant today. I wondered, did the groundswell of interest in the war help or hurt the newspapers at the time? In times of crisis, people tend to turn to the papers more than they would have before. So when you go to war, that's a crisis. And in the case of foreign news, we always have spikes in foreign news during war. It's kind of a law of gravity of news. Uh, and the reason for that is that the public generally is more interested in news that seems to have an impact on them, which is why stories about distant countries that are informational and important, but not necessarily directly to tied to an American's average life, daily quotidian life, is of less urgency from a point of view of what you decide to read and not. War, however, 
does get public interest. And the reason for that is it really becomes a domestic story because it's about your boys going to fight. It's about a direct impact on your, on your economy. It's about national security. Therefore, newspapers devote more resources to war. And this war was, of course, even more urgent because it was very close to the United States. The first part of it, the Cuban part, of course, the part that took place in the place in the Philippines was more distant and covered less well, naturally. Scores and scores of reporters went to Cuba. Newspapers made huge investments in sending reporters there. So, as I said at the beginning of the episode, there was competition between Hearst and Pulitzer, but there was also competition between the yellow press and the more reputable newspapers at the time. I asked Jack, how did yellow journalism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries emerge from the Spanish American War, as opposed to some of those more reputable papers, like the New York Times? So, first of all, the contest between the yellow press and the elite fact-based press is one, is one that resolved itself in coming years to a large extent because the fact-based model became the gold standard for responsible journalists. And those who engaged in journalism that was highly sensational were seen as being less credible journalists, less respectable journalists. Now, we still have journalism like that, right? When I say still, I should probably go back. In the 1970s and 80s, we had those newspapers you could pick up at the supermarket that talked about how I married a two-headed Martian. I mean, obviously, wild reporting that was very sensational. But the model became more that if you're going to be responsible, you need to be fact-based, you need to have sources. And the public, as it became more, a little bit more sophisticated, gravitated toward those newspapers. And those are the ones that ended up doing the best. Interestingly, the New York World doesn't exist, the New York American doesn't exist, but the New York Times does exist. Uh, and the New York Herald and the New York Tribune existed for a long time. The Herald became the Herald Tribune. And of course, we've gotten to the place where, news, where towns now have cities have, some cities have only, many, many cities have only one newspaper. And some cities like New York have, have several, but not anything like they had before. And the Times is the gold standard, not only there, but nationally. So it was about standards. It was about readers. And it was also about the fact that advertisers began to realize that if you wanted your product to be credible, you needed to be in a credible newspaper. That's very important because the credibility of the paper actually makes your own product have more esteem. So there was that. The second thing that's worth mentioning about this is the war became a turning point for the United States as a, as a global power. We began for the first time to see ourselves as that, as a global power, as a nation that was going to be able, began to really extend itself internationally. And, and that was a big surprise to the, to, the, to the Europeans because they had always taken it for granted that we, we obviously were developing and we were becoming rich, uh, but we were never really a threat internationally. We were never really significant. And all of a sudden, we were, because we had beaten a European power. We had beaten the Spanish, whose empire was now really on a steep decline. The other thing that happened as it relates to the press with that is that journalists gradually began to look overseas with the idea that they needed to start covering the world in the same way that we needed navies that would go around the world. We needed reporters that would go around the world. The pioneer of that was the Chicago Daily News, which had many reporters in in Cuba, and decided that it now needed a core of American reporters. Most news that came to the United States was prepared by people who were hired abroad to report for us. That carried on for a long time. The New York Times Bureau in 1918 had more people who were British in it than they did Americans. And uh, so that took a while to develop. But the uh, Chicago Daily News pioneered that idea. They sent one person to London to start with, and then they had a core of reporters around the world. And other reporters began to emulate that. The Times followed. It didn't lead in that regard. 
And by the time you got to World War One, had five or six papers that were really specializing in covering the world. Chicago Daily News being one, the New York Times, the Herald, the Herald and the Tribune, the Christian Science Monitor, papers like that began to be very kind of eyes and ears of the, of the American public. And more and more of the reporters they used abroad were Americans, not people who are from other countries. So that was also a change, an important one, I might add. If you're going to be a great power, you've got to have a great core of journalists to help you make sense of the world. And so the more reputable newspapers eclipsed the popularity of Hearst's and Pulitzer's papers. And it seemed as though fake news or yellow journalism was cast aside to supermarket checkout aisles. But that's not the end of the story. As all of us know, yellow journalism or quote unquote fake news is an everyday occurrence in 2019. On our next episode, we're going to figure out how we got there and how we get out of it. History sure does have an interesting way of repeating itself, doesn't it? John Maxwell Hamilton will be joining us again for our next episode of Fucked Up History. I'd like to thank Darian Shulman for composing our original music and John Wynn for doing all of our original artwork. You can reach out to us at History Buffs Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe on Apple Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and be sure to give us a great rating. Also, tell everyone you know. And we're very excited to have Professor John Hamilton back again next week to continue talking about yellow journalism and fake news. You really won't want to miss the next episode, so be sure to tune in next Friday. I'm your host, Mark Brendan Rosenberg, and this has been Fucked Up History.